With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Facebook was the end-all, be-all for a good three-year run. Yeah. And now it's Google, it's YouTube, it's the leaders in the sort of political ad space, and then it's sort of the connected TV. So streaming is going to have the biggest effect on... 2020. Yes. This is related to both business and political campaigns, but let's say for a candidate of any type of office, if you poll really strongly among a certain demographic and you poll really weakly among another demographic, which group do you double down on? Where you're weak or where you're strong? Because it's a similar question in business though. If like a certain group buys my products but another group doesn't, is my best bang for my buck to raise my profile among the people who don't buy my product? Well, it or- depends. You're trying to get to 50 plus one. Mm-hmm. What's the math? What do you need? Every campaign's different. Mm-hmm. So what's the demographic makeup that's going to get you to 50 plus one on election day, right? Mm-hmm. That's all it takes. And you know, it's funny. Business marketers do not follow this one. And so the businesses that do have great growth. What is a mistake that a business marketer does? Oh, they, they, they sit around a table and brainstorm. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd never brainstorm ideas unless I'm looking at data first. Mm. Like, I, I'm, I'm sure I could probably come up with some great ideas, but you know, it just nuts. Like, businesses we work with are like, well, the marketing company said they had a big brainstorming session. And they found all these great ideas and we implemented them and nothing worked. And I'm like, well, what did the consumer think? Yeah, oh, we didn't think about that. So, I mean, like, we always say, oh, no, no, you got to start with the data and then you got to have to follow these five steps. Every business we've worked with has grown and very few business marketers are following. Very few. Mm. And what other, what other, I mean, what, what other issues do you think of in terms of like developing a campaign strategy for either party for 2020? I, I, you're trying to get me to guess what Trump would do. Or, or the Democrats, <laughs> either one. Okay, Phil Stutz, welcome back to the podcast. You're the online election campaign expert. You've run many online campaigns for many candidates. Who are some of the candidates that you've, that you've worked with? Uh, we've done George W. Bush, both elections. We've done U.S. senators, governors. Uh, God, uh, I'm trying to think who would be more recent that you would know. Governor uh, Sununu in New Hampshire. Uh, it's an interesting case study. We can kind of walk through how digital is targeting these days, but uh, a lot. Presidential campaigns? Who are you willing to say? Yeah, I've done uh, Bobby Jindal. We did a little Marco Rubio. We did a little Ted Cruz. We did a Donald Trump super PAC. Um, I'm trying to think who. Uh, I've done Dan Quayle. I was on Dole in 96. I've had plenty of losses. Uh, but we did. We were part of Cruz's team in Iowa last year. So that was, uh, as we head into the Iowa caucuses, uh, that was kind of a good win for us because we beat Trump at the time. And, you know, um, uh, one thing you explained to me, and I think this was outside of the podcast, you, you had a really nice history of how 2004 presidential campaigns used online, how it was different from 2008, then yep. 2012, and 2016, and what could be 2020. Just real as a quick intro, what's kind of the evolution of presidential campaigns specifically using uh, online? Yeah, and I'd, I'd even go back and say this. There's this sort of stereotype of political marketers as the guys that do ragtag advertisements and campaigns and you know nothing like a corporate ad or anything like that. Um, and really, I think the world kind of shifted in 2004. We, we, oh, 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 by the way, before, yeah. you, before you do this, uh, the, the purpose of this podcast is we're going to kind of figure out who's going to win in 2020 or at least play around with the math that, that you keep yeah. uncovering. Yeah. But okay, now okay, 2004. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and so uh, really, I think the shift, there was a complete diametrical shift in 2004. And where, why it's important um, is that we've talked about this. There's a, you know, everybody, it's, it's very stereotypical to say disruption is coming into the world. But we we see more disruption in politics way before the corporate world gets there. So like Trump, 
was the mass, most massive disruption that had ever occurred in the history of American politics. And it's sort of the kind of like, I always tell our corporate clients, like in four, eight, 10 years, this is gonna be your business, your industry, right? It really started in 2004. And what happened in 2004 was, uh, this was the first time in the history of an American political campaign that the political marketers were using consumer data and matched it up against voter data. So voter data is, James, you're registered to vote in New York. Uh, I, the state of New York gives us all that, all the registered voters, people that vote. We know whether you vote in primaries, general elections, both, whatever. And then we, you, and previously to 2004, that's the only data we ever used to target voters to get out to vote on election day. So, or so target you would target Democrats, you would target Democrats who are locally or target Republicans. Right. Okay. Right. Men. Yeah. Men, primaries, you would only target primary voters, you uh -huh. know, those types of things. In 2004, we came up with a model where we used consumer data. Find, you know, this is 04, so for your audience that's online now, this sounds laughable, but this was a very innovative moment in history, in political marketing history, which was we could find out how many, what subscriptions people had to magazines. We could find out what their purchases were from credit cards, and then we could match that with the voter data and then go to those voters and talk about those issues that we knew they cared about. So, so for instance, if, um, if, if a Republican... Or if a Democrat will subscribe to a, 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 a gun magazine, you could maybe focus yeah, on maybe how, that would be a, a person that you could switch over to your side. And, and 2004 was um, it was Bush versus John Kerry, right? Correct. Uh, uh, so you would uh, you maybe would would target John Kerry voters, and uh, again, John Kerry feels like this on guns. Bush, yeah, you, it's a really good point. What we did in that election was something counterintuitive to every other election I'd ever worked on, which was in every other election I ever worked on, we always go after the high propensity voters and we want to make, they're going to vote. So we got to make sure they vote. So we, we advertised to them, we pushed them to the polls in that particular campaign in 04. And I was the national get out the vote director for, for the Bush campaign and the Republican national committee. But we actually went after the low propensity voters and use this data to try to motivate them to vote, right? You're always trying to motivate, but these were the low propensity voters or swing voters, right? And really why this is so important is that it was the first time that data was used in such a you know, you know, very dynamic way in political campaigns. It was data-driven political campaign. It was the first of its kind. Because, because so let me, let me try to figure this out. So these people who uh, maybe they're registered, but they just haven't voted in the past, five elections, but you know what issues are important to them based on their consumer data. Right. And um, you can say, listen, this is the election for this issue. Here's why. Yes. And then that gets them to Correct. some percentage of them yeah, will now vote. And you could do that back then. It really wasn't online, right? So it was through mail because you could mail directly to that person on that issue. Mm -hmm. It could be a phone call because back then you could make automated calls and a bunch of other kind of calls because people had hard lines back then. And, and then door knocking. We would send teams out to door knock. And then on election day, we would turn people out to vote. You know, once we once we'd advertise them, then we would find out whether we had swung them into our bucket. And if they had come into our bucket, then we would turn them out. To and, vote. and did it work? Well, Bush won. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, and my point was that was the most disruptive moment in political marketing history because it was used data for the first time from consumer and voter data were combined into one. And until 2008, when Obama combined sort of social media and there wasn't a lot of targeting there at the time, but it was social media, but the same data we had, but he also used it from, you know, on social media, right? And so that, obviously he was a, the most disruptive campaign that had ever run because he was the first African-American president. So that was an incredible moment, but it was data and social media. And again, most disruptive moment in political campaign history was literally four years later until <laughs> well, well so 2004 yeah. consumer data plus voter data but you were using a lot of offline methods right. um so this was so so this is where data plays a front row seat for the first, first time. time now 2008 social media is is combined with right. that how did he make use of consumer data voter data and social media all together right. he used uh, consumer data and voter data to do the same kind of offline uh targeting we did the only difference was that with the you know, emergence of social media platforms, there's, there wasn't, you still couldn't use data to really target that much. You could a little bit, but it was very generic, very broad. So it was the first, but he used it to get momentum to build his brand, right? To, 
to use these offline mechanisms that would really work. Like what would be an ad that he used on social media that maybe he wouldn't have, that, that was sort of innovative? I, I mean, I just can't remember. I just don't know. I but really but don't. you're saying that basically he used social media more than oh. the other candidates just to, to build up the brand, to say, hey, I'm, yeah. I'm with the millennials, I'm with the young people. Right, it's a movement. He, he used social media to make a movement, right? right. And, and so, so the other, uh, the but other, there still wasn't the, the pla social media platforms didn't have the technology to target into voter bases, target individual voters like you can now. It just didn't exist. It, and, and you're saying like John McCain just didn't use social media in 2008. Like he just wasn't active there. They didn't, they didn't do much. Yeah. Right. And there, by then there was already like probably a hundred million social media users. Yeah. Right. But they didn't, they didn't utilize it. And think about it. Like our, uh, customer base voter base is really old, right? And both, like you can say Democrats have younger voters, but really vote, young voters have not voted in high propensities in the past. Mm -hmm. Even today, they still haven't. They can say they're all excited and motivated, but the data says they still don't vote. Mm -hmm. But back in 2008, with the emergence of Facebook and Twitter and everything like that, old people weren't on that. They weren't on it. So they, the, the Obama Canyon used it to sort of create a movement that then swung a lot of, you know, soccer moms, middle, middle, uh, you know, I'd say like 35 to 55 year old voters, uh, into their column over time. So they used it m in the most effective manner that had ever been done in a political campaign. And then, you know, and then I say in eight years later or four years later, 2012, no, they, same thing. The targeting was a little bit better on social media. Um, but they basically read, did the same thing. But given Obama's success in, success in, uh, 2008, why, why didn't uh, Mitt Romney step up his game? They did. Uh, for social they did. media. You got to understand, though, <laughs> Obama started running for re-election the day after he won the first election. Mm -hmm. So he had unlimited resources to run for re-election. It's the same thing Trump's doing right now. Mm -hmm. Mitt Romney got in a long, drawn-out primary that ended in the spring, and he basically had seven, eight months to run a presidential campaign that already had a four-year four head start on him. And really, if you think about it, the first campaign laid the foundation. So it was like a five, six-year head start. They did the best they could with the tools they had. But th this is the problem with a lot of challengers coming into these campaigns when we talk about 2020, is that they're running other races right now. They're not targeting Republicans or swing voters. They're targeting primary voters on the Democratic side right now, right? Trump's been trying to win re-election since the day after the election in 2016. So that's the advantage of incumbency. So 2012, no new real innovations, maybe a little bit more targeting. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, and a popular president, obviously. Yeah. And then, okay, 2016, what uh, happened? The, the, that's, again, became the most disruptive moment in uh, modern political campaign history. Because Trump really, the, the, about, the ability to take, take consumer and all the data that we just talked about, Marriott, uh, on social media platforms where the targeting is com was completely insane. And by the way, that doesn't exist almost anymore, what we could do in 16, because they pulled the reins back. On like what, what targeting could you do then that you can't do now? I'll, I'll tell you in a second. And then, and then he combined it all with branding, Make America Great Again. It was the greatest branding, branding campaign that had ever existed. And so when you combine the branding, the targeting, and the ability uh, or the data and the ability to target on social media, it was the most innovative, disruptive campaign that's ever been run. Whether you like the guy or not, that's what it was. How, how did he use the branding combined with the targeting? Like, wasn't the brand just the brand for everybody? Yeah, but then they reinforced it on all the platforms, right? So wait, so with Facebook, um, here's how it used to work. And I mean, there's a part of it that works now, but I'll kind of get into how it works now. But um, at 16, you could literally take that voter file that I told you about, right? And you could overlay it on Facebook's platform. And I could run ads that only went to the segmented voters that I wanted to go after. So if I said... Women 45 to 65, I know in, um, you know, Cuyahoga County in Ohio that they care about this issue. I can run ads just to those, those registered or habitual voters in that particular county to that particular segment. I mean, you could go even more granular than that. The fact is, is you, in the old days, you would run one TV ad, it'd be all over the country. And now I can segment so down to the person in very efficient manner you know, whether in whatever campaign we're on. Um, so, so, so like if you were to use one word to describe the big innovation, would you say it's like, it was like hyper local or like what, 
what would you say is the big innovation in 2016 that happened? Because <laughs> the social was, media uh, platforms still using let branding. us in on everything, mm -hmm. and it was unregulated, and it was the Wild West. So we could target so precisely to voters based on what we knew they cared about. And if you think about it, we, we've talked to this a lot before. This is kind of the approach that we don't see a lot in corporate marketing now because people just like to talk about their companies or their service or their product, but they never say, this is what our customers love. Like in politics, everything I've ever done since I got into politics in 1996 has been about what do the voters think? And we got to target the voters. We got we to figure out what the voters care about. So then with the emergence of these platforms and then the ability for them to allow us to go deep and granular into, uh, into their platform to be able to target those voters, man, it was like a panacea for us because for the first time ever, it was like, this is the ultimate targeting right here. So, so what was an example ad you did in, you could do in 2016 sure. that you wouldn't even thought about in 2012? Oh God, man. So you could, and the Trump folks did this, uh, you, they would run one ad on one message and they'd run maybe 130 different variations of it, different colors. Maybe they'd move one word around. They'd have different pictures they did it, and they'd test the hell out of it. And then what Facebook would do is 10 of those would be on fire. And then Facebook would put lighter fluid on it for free. Hmm. And then the campaign would put money in it. And then they'd just go after it because it engaged so, all that so testing many was automated people. somehow. What's that? All that testing, like let's oh let's try. Yeah. So, so right, you're getting the real back. You're getting real time feedback on a daily basis or hourly basis. What about in terms of the hyper local stuff? Like uh, uh, one message would go to this county in mm -hmm. Ohio, but another message would go to this sure. county in Alabama. Would you do stuff like that? Yeah, but we did stuff like that in the mail twenty years ago. So mm -hmm. this is, I mean, it, I, I my, in my brain, like oh yeah, this is what we've always done. It's just a different way of doing it, and it's the same thing now. Like so in twenty twenty, I would even tell you. Facebook sucks now. Mm -hmm. Like it may be good for the consumer, <laughs> but from a marketer standpoint, I just don't, there's just not much value. It takes, you know, weeks or months to onboard a particular candidate they want to run. They have to work through all these hoops. Facebook is basically indicating they don't want to, they, they don't really care about persuasion campaigns anymore. So a candidate that wants to get a message out to try to convince a voter. The, the, Facebook is a very good tool right now to raise money and get volunteers into people that are already supporting you. But it's not a good tool to sort of convince new voters or swing voters to come into the process. So like basically candidate, you, would, you, you still have the voter data and you would just target the people who are likely to vote for you and say, hey, f f give us money. Raise money. Or, Raise money. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but you, you, you can't do like, oh, I'm going to target this county because they're more pro this and the candidate is pro. So we I mean, it's a branding. You mm -hmm. can go out in there and do a lot more branding, but Facebook has just put so many restrictions. It's, you know, it's kind of like uh, they're punishing the bad actors and everybody gets punished. So what's going to happen in 2020 to online campaigning? So it's all going into streaming. And here's why it's so, I mean. Streaming like you, like. YouTube like Hulu or? and yeah, mm -hmm. oh, YouTube is number one platform. Mm -hmm. YouTube's far, far surpassed Facebook in my mm -hmm. opinion because everything is optimized to video because that's where the consumer eyeballs are going or voter eyeballs. And so uh, what we're seeing now, oh man, I was just talking to someone about this the other day, but like uh, set like, so these TV companies that make TV, Samsung, Vizioli, they are collecting data on you and then they're giving it to us, mm -hmm. you know, um, Hulu, you know, Ro like Roku TV, like um, uh, Pluto, like all these other apps and streaming, the you know, streaming service apps, they're collecting the data and then we're getting it. So what we're able to do is uh, let, and we've done this for clients, but let's say a bad ad runs on the NBC nightly news. I'm, I'm going to do, I'll stay on the democratic side for a second. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a hard ad or a hard story on Elizabeth Warren, right? The NBC Nightly News does a terrible story for Elizabeth Warren. Mm -hmm. The Warren campaign can find out everybody that watched the NBC Nightly News on the streaming services because the TV companies and the apps will give us that data. Mm -hmm. And then they can turn around and, and create a counter ad to that story and only deliver it to the people that watched the NBC Nightly News. How would they deliver it? And they can deliver it on the streaming, and because we got their IP address, we can then go into all their devices. 
So, 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 how do you go into the devices? Like, what would you advertise on? Like, like anywhere that they're following, you know, like a, like a web page. Like, they go, let's say they check CNN.com, they could see yeah. the Elizabeth right, Warren. Right, because you have their, it's IP targeted. So, and who, who would you, would you make the deal with Google AdSense that advertises on CNN.com? Or, like, who, who's, what platform would you use to, to buy your, uh, yeah, we have uh, partners that we work with on that. A bunch of like ad yeah. parts. So, that's how insane it is right now. So, re- let me go back to this. Yeah. Facebook was the end-all, be-all for a good three-year run. Yeah. And now it's Google, it's YouTube, it's the leaders in the sort of political ad space, and then it's the sort of the connected TV. But but here's what I don't understand. Like, uh, Hulu, I never see an ad when I look at Hulu or Netflix or well, Amazon. Sure. Well, with Hulu, it's live TV. So, so is there, do a lot of people watch live TV well, at Hulu? I do, I do because I like sports. Uh-huh. So I have Hulu and so you're not just watching bucks a month cable. So you're, you're not watching like your cable channel or whatever? I don't have cable. So you're 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 just OTT. You're just yep. over the top. Correct. And Hulu is how you watch yep. news and sports. Right. Do you think a large part of the like how do people watch yes. local news? How what? How do people watch local news through through the streaming services? Now I, we're not. Is it the majority? No. The cable companies still have probably 60 percent of the market, but it's 40 percent right now. Wow, that's a lot. It's a lot. And they're watching it through Hulu, PlayStation. Where are they watching it? Yeah, that's right. That's it. And and then I guess you're able to advertise back on Hulu and and all these places. Right, YouTube but and I so mean, on. I can advertise on their phone if they watched a particular show on a story, or an ad was run, and we found out the ad was run on that. And during you know live newscast, we can then you know run one of our counter ads against it. And so so apps also you can advertise on apps on the phone mm-hmm. things like that. So probably app it's ad IP targeting. Address, so you, you can do anything. Yeah, because it's their IP that has their. You know, it's sort of like their fingerprint, their internet fingerprint on the house that they live in. So streaming is going to have the biggest effect the biggest. on 2020. Yes. So, okay. So I just, so I love that. I love that evolution. And, and, and by the way, traditional ads, TV is still important. Radio is, is still important. Mm-hmm. But without any targeting, just like general. I mean, you can target on TV and radio. You can get demo break, breakdowns and all that kind of stuff. Is it as effective as connected TV you know, or over the top stuff? No. But it's still effective. So, so this is this is a, a random question. Let's say you pull. Uh, this is related to both business and political campaigns. Yeah, but yeah. let's say for a candidate of any type of office, if you poll really strongly among a certain demographic, and you poll really weakly uh, among another demographic, which which group do you double down on? <laughs> the weak, the where where you're weak or where you're strong? You're talking about for a candidate or an issue? A, a candidate. So, so a candidate marketing to a demographic. So let's say uh, someone polls really strong among uh, African-American men and doesn't poll really strong among white women. Should they try to advertise more for white women or African-American men? I don't, like you, do you double I, down where you're strong no, or where you're I don't, weak? I, think, uh, I don't know if the question works. So mm-hmm. can I... Yeah. Kind of back it up. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a similar question in business, though. If, like, a certain group buys my products but another group doesn't, right. is my best bang for my buck to raise my profile among the people who don't buy my product? Well, it or- depends. You're trying to get to 50 plus one. Mm-hmm. So how, how, what's the math? Mm-hmm. What, what do you need? Every, every campaign is different. Mm-hmm. So what's the demographic makeup that's going to get you to 50 plus one on election day, right? Mm-hmm. That's all it takes. Um, and, you know, sometimes when you go after constituencies that you don't have a high threshold with or you're weak with, they never get your ads anyway. So they're more apt to come your way and they're dying for someone to say, yeah, I'm like that too. Mm. So you don't want to absolutely ignore it, but you have to figure out who you're going to target. So what I'm saying is the math, it just depends. Every campaign is completely different. Uh, What you got to do is, you know, I always, uh, it's interesting. I identified this five-step process we use in political campaigns and marketing campaigns. And it's, you get the data on your voters first. And you've got to design the campaign around that. Really, I always tell a candidate when I'm working with them, like, what do you care about first? And then they'll tell me like 10 things. And then we'll go poll the district, right? And then the district will find out that, oh, they're they're in alignment on two or three issues. Well, that's all we're going to talk about. And then we build sort of step two is you build a marketing campaign around it. And step three, you, you create the brand all around what the voter wants. Again, it all comes back to the voter, right? And then step four is you start testing all the messages. And I'll give you a great example. 
we did work for Governor Sununu in New Hampshire in 2018. And th this was a you know Republican running for re-election in a bad year for Republicans to be running, period, especially in the Northeast. And he was running against a woman, which was the year of the woman, too. Mm -hmm. So, and she was Democrat, obviously. So, you know, it was, we were facing an uphill battle, we thought. And the data told us, and this goes back to your question, the data told us um, through a lot of, you know, we took all this data, consumer data and voter data, and it told us that uh, lower taxes were very important to the constituency in New Hampshire. That makes sense. Like, you know, they uh, live free or die is their right. motto. <clears throat> but so we tested a bunch of ads and what we found was we had very stark differences between two voter groups, uh, men and women. We didn't know, oh, that was interesting. And so in the testing process, this fourth, fourth step that we always go through, we found out that women wanted to hear about the tax cuts, but how they affected other people's lives in a positive way. Men just wanted the damn tax cuts. Like they're just like, no, just want more money in my pocket. So what we ended up doing, and we did a big case study, we just ran different ads to those different segments. And Sanudu ended up winning by eight points. So what was like uh, an ad to, what did it look like? What one of your ads to women? Oh, it told an individual story of a person that had been affected by the tax cut. So like, like in a family. So like, oh, taxes were cut for me and yeah. I was able to support my older parents yeah. with that extra money and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, something to that effect. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah, the case studies on our website. You can go watch the ad. I think and, it's on there. And, and before we get into 2020, one yeah. final question, which is what's the role of uh, negative ads or voter suppression yeah, and all this stuff. Well, not voter suppression, but negative ads. But well, real quick on that Sanudu thing, the fifth step was now that we found out what really resonated with both sets of voters, then we were all in. So that mm -hmm. was step five, which is now that you know it works, you go all in. Uh, and you know, it's funny, we, uh, with our business marketers do not follow this formula. And so the businesses that do have great growth. Well, what, what do businesses do when they make mistakes? What's that? What, what, is a, what is a mistake that a business marketer does? Oh, geez. They sit around a table and brainstorm. Mm -hmm. Like, I never brainstorm ideas unless I'm looking at data first. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I'm, I'm sure I could probably come up with some great ideas, but you know what drives me nuts is, like, businesses we work with are like, well, the marketing company said they had a big brainstorming session and they found all these great ideas and we implemented them and nothing worked. And I'm like, well, what did the consumer think? Oh, we didn't think about that. So, I mean, like, we always say, oh, no, no, you got to start with the data and then you got to have to follow these five steps. Every business we've worked with has grown and very few business marketers are following that. Very few. Hmm. It's, so it's been a fascinating to see. Look, everybody in political marketing, James, does this. If I'm running against a campaign, I have a Republican and I'm running against a Democrat, they follow the same five-step process. Hmm. If I'm doing two Republicans in a primary and I've got one candidate and I'm running against another, they follow the same process because it makes you innovate every second of the day. It makes you accountable every second of the and day. I suppose also it's extremely outcome oriented. It's not like totally. our sales up quarter over quarter. It's like, we need to win on this one day Correct. and then the entire business is shut down. Yes, <laughs> So right. Uh, right, we have election day. Yeah. And so, you know, I just, it's weird. No one is doing this in business marketing. So negative ads, yeah, okay. where's the role that plays, you know, in all of this? Well, I mean, you, you'll see this. Uh, so if we want to kind of jump in, um, you know, you can see in, you know, the, I don't know when this is going to come out, but like I would, you know, it's going to be the caucuses, right? And right now you've got Warren, you've got Biden on top. They're going to, the, the, the le lesser candidates, whether it's Klobuchar whether it's uh, Kamala Harris, whether it's Pete Buttigieg, I can't believe I said all those names properly, um, you know, or it's going to be Biden or Warren. They're all going to come after each other at some point. Like the reason Cory Booker, if he's in the race when this comes out or not, I don't know, but he, he's been savaging Biden for months now because he's behind. And this is a telltale. Usually you go negative when you're behind and you're trying to make up the difference. You know, I, we've said this in the last time I was on the podcast, like we do negative ads because they work. That's just mm -hmm. the bottom line. They work. Mm -hmm. And in politics, we're completely savages about it because all you but have- But Cory to, Booker has been using them and it hasn't, he's been kind of going down. But you know why? And, but how about, and the, the counter to that is Pete Buttigieg has actually done really well. Why? Because I think people see through uh, the inauthenticity of 
booker mm. at this point. Mm. Whereas with Buttigieg, he comes off very authentic. In a way, it's why Yang, uh, Andrew Yang is still in the race because he does come off different and outlier and authentic. But I mean, Booker's been running for president since he was mayor of uh, Newark. Yeah. So everybody sees that. And, it, you know, and he's changed his positions a hundred times to fit what he wants to ultimately be, which is president. And therefore the voters kind of see through that. So when have you seen like negative ads work, for instance? Well, every campaign I've ever worked on. Like what, what, what's, a good, what's a good example? Um, I mean, look, a great example is 2016. And I don't even know if it was a negative ad that Trump ran, but obviously low energy Jeb, uh -huh. right? He, you know, he tagged all these nicknames for all these candidates, which was huge. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't know. I've done so, I've done thousands of them. So, I mean, I can tell you that they've, <laughs> do they always work? No. But the reason you do is because at a certain point in the campaign, you need a little juice. And the only way you're going to get it is to draw a distinct difference between you and the other candidate. Ultimately, it's all about emotion. You're just trying to draw more people to make a bigger connection to you in the campaign so that you can win. So, so, and then the final question before we start analyzing 2020, okay. what's the role of voter suppression ads and what, what are those? I don't, I don't know. Oh, okay. I thought I maybe that I swear was... to God, I don't know. You wouldn't try to like suppress the vote? Uh... I know. Oh, okay. I swear to God. No, this isn't like some PC thing. Like, <laughs> I just don't even know what that is. Like, okay, maybe people it's, love maybe it's to nothing. claim it on both sides. <laughs> uh -huh but I'm yet to understand what they're talking about. Like, look, I lived in South Dakota for a year and worked on a U.S. Senate race. And they, on the Indian reservations, we heard, oh, they were, you know, sending, you know, the Indian, on the Indian reservations, they were able to vote six times in one day and all that stuff. And, you know, and then, so we would send election lawyers in to make monitor and make sure that really wasn't happening. Is that suppression or is that responding to something that we right. heard? Uh, neither happened and everything was fine. But I mean, you hear this all the time. I just, I, I, on the suppression ads, I don't know. There have been nefarious characters that have done like phone calls, like, hey, the election's on November 12th. We know and the election's like on November 8th. <laughs> but uh, is that, I don't, is that what you're like? No, I would just hear this, that voter suppression was a big deal, but maybe it's not. I don't know. So, okay, 2020, what's the math? What's, what's, your, what's your take on the whole Dem oh, yeah, yeah. Democratic primary? Well, I can give you an honest election. assessment of the Democrats because I'm not working for any of them, so I don't yeah. have any invested interests, right? Uh -huh. uh, look, 43% of people, of candidates that win Iowa win the nomination uh, on Democratic side. I think it's 50% for Republicans. So Iowa is the most critical. Everybody sees these national polls and they think, oh, who's up? Who's down? Is Biden up? Like, it, it doesn't, it really isn't about that. It's about Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada to a certain extent because that's in between yeah, New because, Hampshire like, and South Carolina. I don't know how they, where, when the lineup is, like California for a long time was one so of the last. Super Tuesday, I think. Uh, so, so, or March but, 3rd. But like, it seems like whoever... Whoever's polling in California now, that has nothing to do with who's going to be polling no, in California okay. California next poll May. just came out the other day and the news media grabs it and runs with it. They don't check the methodology. They don't check mm -hmm. anything, right? So, but they just run with the story because they're trying to get clicks. And then people buy it. And then people go around going, oh, well, Kamala's not doing good in California. And she may like, not be. I don't know. I feel like Iowa, though, is a weird election to judge on because it's a it's a caucus yes. versus a, it's a gathering so yeah so it's like it's like this big party where everybody raises their hand <laughs> as opposed to going to a polling booth yeah. and and voting so so yeah, why, but the media doesn't play it that way on mm -hmm. election night but like a lot of people because you need a different type of infrastructure to campaign in Iowa right mm -hmm. so so like someone like let's just use it as an example Andrew Yang he's not necessarily going to have the political mm -hmm. machine infrastructure he doesn't know the party bosses yes. he knows people so he can go door to door in New Hampshire but going door to door in, in Iowa makes no sense. So yeah, so let's break that down. So mm -hmm. you got the the ground game is extremely important. In 2008, Hillary had a 10 point lead in Iowa in October before uh, the caucuses. You know, just a couple months later, like the caucuses were like January 3rd then. So two months for election, she had 10 point lead. Uh, I think a week before the Iowa caucuses in 2008, uh, there was one poll that had John Edwards up by one point. I mean, think about that. Hmm. And then Obama wins, right? So then you go to New Hampshire. Well, in 2008, 
uh, Obama was winning New Hampshire almost the entire, uh, for, for almost the entire year. Then he wins Iowa. Well, your thought process is, oh, okay, well, he's going to win New Hampshire now. And then, it, no, I'm sorry, Hillary was winning New Hampshire most of it, uh, most of the whole year. And then Obama took the lead in New Hampshire like two days before the vote because he'd won Iowa. He got that momentum. But then the New Hampshire voters swung back to Hillary, so she ended up winning New Hampshire. And then they went to South Carolina, where two months or three months before South Carolina in 2008, Hillary had a 24-point lead over Obama. On primary day in South Carolina in 2008, uh, Obama won by 20 points. It was a 44-point swing. Think about that. So, like, everybody that's saying they know right now, they don't know, right? Um what I try to do is you've got these top tier candidates, which are Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden and Bernie. Bernie feels like he's got a ceiling and a floor and it's the same number, <laughs> you know, but uh, th that he's at about, you know, 11, 12%, right? And then you've got these sort of second tier candidates. And then you got, who, then this goes to the question when you were talking about with Andrew Yang, who has infrastructure in that state that could make a run? Because I was, I ones love the underdog and it, to me, it feels like Pete Buttigieg. It just does. In Iowa. In Iowa. Hmm. He's been there for a long time. Like he and Kamala or Kamala uh, Harris and uh, uh, Amy Klobuchar are the sort of, you know, in, in a little bit of uh, Cory Booker, if he's still around. I don't know how much longer he's going to be around. But they're kind of all second tier. But really, if you're going to get momentum, you got to have some kind of infrastructure there. Buttigieg has that. Uh, Kamala is coming now. Has come in and said she's going to live in Iowa until the uh, until the caucuses. It's just hard to see how she makes a difference. So what will be interesting to see is do Bernie, uh, Warren, and Biden punch each other in the face for the next three months, and Buttigieg stays, you know, punch free. And he kind of comes up the middle and scores. Like, all you need to do is get in the top three and you can move on. What, what kind if you're of voter, outside the top three, you're done. What kind of voter votes in the Iowa caucus? Because, again, you have to be a little bit more active than the average voter. Yeah, you're white going liberal, to a meeting. White and liberal. And, and, and so, like, I feel like Joe Biden has name recognition among the average newspaper reader. But does he have the people who are going to go to the caucuses? I mean, I guess he's got to be heavy in the political machine because he was vice president. Right. He's been he's run for president like five times. So, so what's, yeah, I, the question is his Warren, I looked at some really good caucus polling numbers the other night. Warren amongst caucus goers has like 75% favorables amongst all caucus goers. That, that is by far and away the largest number. What's there Biden's is. number there? I think 67, mm -hmm. but Buttigieg's was 69, hmm. even though he's polling it. 10% and everybody else is, or the other, you know, Biden and uh, Warren are in the twenties and Bernie is in third right now. So there's a lot of potential for Buttigieg. So, so if you were to give him advice right now about how he could campaign there, what, what would you say? I, I think they're doing the right thing. He's mm -hmm. just staying authentic to him. So he's doing like a McCain bus tour right now, uh, everywhere. And, uh, he's at, telling reporters they can ask him anything, anytime, kind of like McCain did in 2000. Mm -hmm. And that kind of authenticity plays really well with the reporters. It could also hurt him if he screws up. They'll come after him, but and the reporters will. But what about like... What has he got to lose right now? Like Biden being kind of the front runner, everybody is sort of sure. aiming at him, including the media. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of... They're coming to Warren now. Yeah. They'll start hitting Warren now. But like with Biden, they come out after just the way he speaks because he's, you know, he's 79 years old. He's getting a little older. He's, he hasn't always been the most lucid uh, speaker in general. Uh, you know, he's famous for his gaffes. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think, uh, even though he's the front runner and even though people are largely aware of, of, of this, do you think that could become an issue where yeah. he just implodes? Yes. A hundred percent. Why, why hasn't it already happened actually? Well, because I think people are scared to death. Look, the number one issue right now is amongst Democratic voters is beat, anybody to beat Trump. Like that's uh -huh. number one. And so they think Biden can win. The key this whole race, I'm talking about the general election yeah. between Trump, is working whites. That's it. That's the key whole election. Where are the working white? Uh, voter go so so like so so because for these fringe states like the Michigan, Democrats Ohio. can't win without working whites, and the Republicans can't win without working whites. So where do they? It's just it, that slight shift, either way, 
So Biden, obviously, the voters know he has the opportunity to get working white voters. He just yeah. does, you know, uh, the blue collar white work, the, the Reagan Republicans, right? The, the people that switch. They, this is the uh, same people that voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump. So um, what happens to them? And they know Biden is the, the, the most electable, but the most electable doesn't always win, in fact. They all often don't win. So like at this point in prior elections, have you ever seen a candidate? I mean, Joe Biden's got a pretty imposing lead. I guess you could say in 2008, Hillary Clinton had an imposing lead and then kind of it didn't work out for her. Mm -hmm. Obama pulled ahead. Uh, in what other election could you think of where some candidate had a huge lead and then just self-destructed? 1972, well, Edmund Muskie, Democrat. <laughs> Well, I mean, George H.W. Bush and had a 91% approval rating in 1991. Yeah. And in 1992, he lost to Bill Clinton. But I'm thinking just in the primaries. Oh, in the primaries. I'd have to... I Gary know. Hart in 1984. Yeah, I remember well. That or 1988. Was, 1988, sorry. a scandal, and that's probably yeah. what brought him down. But he wasn't like a massive front runner. Listen, Biden is already losing ground. Warren is now up in Hawaii, in Iowa. Uh -huh. And and I have friends of mine that are crazy liberals in New Hampshire and they say, Philip, you go to one of his rallies and you walk out of there and go, oh boy, we're in trouble because he is nonsensical half the time. And they're like, he just can't connect his thoughts. And by the way, like from an empathetic standpoint, he's 76. Like, I, and he's trying to run for president. Like I, w I would never do something like that. Yeah, why is he doing that? I have that? a hard time connecting my thoughts now. I couldn't imagine in thirty-one yeah. years. And so, so in New Hampshire, but but again, you're saying a lot of it depends on what happens in, in Iowa. And so, this is part of the reason why some like someone like Andrew Yang, who seems to have a lot of enthusiasm behind his campaign, mm. he he probably can't campaign at all in Iowa, really. So he's he's focusing so much on New Hampshire. What's going to happen is to his to the enthusiasm behind him when people see the Iowa results. You think that goes down? In uh, in New Hampshire, not necessarily. It doesn't always happen, you know. Um, but it's going to be a hard road for him. I, I think he's banking on the fact that New Hampshires are very, um, you know, sort of independent in their thinking. They don't want to just do what what Iowa says, right? But there is a momentum sweep that comes out of Iowa. And there's a momentum sweep that comes out of New Hampshire, and it literally will narrow the field down to two or three, and then and then it's really game on to Super Tuesday, which is in early March. And who's what states are in Super Tuesday? Oh, I'd have to look at the list. It's a lot, but it's, it's a lot of southern California, states. Yeah, the southern states. And so California used to be in June, right. but now you're saying it's in March. I'm ninety-nine percent sure. Yeah. And um, so let's say Elizabeth. New York's Ward not until like the end of March. So hmm. it, it'd be interesting to see if there's two, you know, two. In a way, you know, and let's say, you know, Warren just did this mass rally in New York and 20,000 people came. I mean, maybe that plays a little bit if she's still in there in March. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a calculation to that rally she had recently. Oh, she had a rally here in New York City? 20,000 people came. Where, where was it? I, I don't. I didn't see that. I didn't. Union Square, Washington Square. Washington Square a lot Park of people. Uh, so, so, okay. What other calls, what other things you're seeing in the democratic campaign that are interesting? So I think African-Americans are the, are the key in the democratic campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, so Bernie has never pulled well with African-Americans mm -hmm. ever. And, and, um, so South Carolina is going to be the, the real battleground for African-American votes. And if you look at the poll, polling right now, Biden, because of his history and his vice presidency is polling really, really, really well with African-Americans. So it would take a lot for him to get knocked down. Um, people, what we're also seeing in both of these states are uh, they like uh, the policies of Elizabeth Warren, um, but maybe she's a little off-putting. Now, this is what the you know some of these in-state polls are saying. So... It's just a crazy dynamic. I, I don't know. And, you know, Cory Booker came out the other day and said, you know, if Kamala or I don't make it very far, that means we've got, you know, three old white people at the top, top of the ticket. And it's true. It's crazy. I mean, you've got the most woke voter base that has ever existed on the Democratic side, and they're going to nominate an old white person. Yeah, but let's say they nominate Biden. Don't you think he'll, who, who do you think is a likely, like Kamala Harris is probably a likely VP candidate for him, for anybody, Oh, for really. sure. A hundred percent. That's what would happen. But if Elizabeth Warren won, who is it going to be her? Maybe Cory Booker would be her VP yeah. candidate. Maybe. So. Or, or Kamala. If you think about it, have two women on the ticket. That's probably what she'd do, something like that. Yeah, just to kind of really stand out or differentiate. Mm -hmm. It'd be smart.
Okay, now just in terms of the electoral math, what does it look like going into the general okay, election? So I would tell you right now it's 248 to 248. You got to get to 271. So the key states are going to right now, everything can change. We're, you know, we're you know, a long way from election day. Uh, I would look at it as Arizona, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Arizona? It's got 11 electoral votes. Wisconsin's got 10 electoral votes. And Pennsylvania's got 20 electoral votes. Uh, those are not, all- Not the tr Like you said, working whites, I always think of Michigan yep. and Ohio. Right. Michigan is trending um, uh, Democratic right now. So it, and it was Republican in 2016. It was, and it still can swing in the next, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 12, 15 months. But that's um, that's that's what it is right now. Somebody has got a, you know, if you've got two, four, 248, and those are three states that are complete toss-ups right now, then somebody has got to win two of them. Now, Trump could win a couple state. He's going to try to win a couple states he lost in 16. New Hampshire, which I think has four electoral votes. Uh, he's gonna. He was in New Mexico recently, which has uh, got five electoral votes, and they're saying they're going to go after Minnesota because Minnesota's got fifty-seven percent of the voting populations are working whites, and I think they would make a play there possibly as well. They tried to make a play. At the end oh, of the that's campaign been typically 16. like hugely crazy. I, like yeah, like right. they've had socialist senators. Correct. I think they have to see how Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Arizona turnout. So in your 248 versus 248, are you putting uh, Michigan and Ohio in the Democrat category? Michigan is, it would be a lean. I mean, it can, it's not in a toss up, but right now, like, and Ohio is way Republican. So you put, in Ohio, your 248 versus 248, you're trying to put I think Ohio and Wisconsin, I think it's something like 61 or 57% working whites in both states. Um, but I mean, you look at Ohio, Ohio and Florida, and they've swung clearly to Trump. So, so, so in your 248 and 248, you've, you've counted all this, but you're saying Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, those are the critical battlegrounds where mm -hmm. right now they could go either way. Mm -hmm. And if, if either candidate dominates those three States, it moves that 248 to 280 something. Yeah. And then it's enough right now. There are other States that could come into that swing. So there could be, uh, like we talked about Michigan, New Hampshire, uh, maybe Nevada, could all come in and and come into the swing at some point, but right now they're on the outer edges. And what other what other I mean what what other issues do you think of in terms of like developing a campaign strategy for either party for twenty twenty? I, I <laughs> you're trying to get me to guess what Trump would do, <laughs> or or the Democrats, either one. I mean, I, I you know, the only you've got to work you've got to win working class whites. You just have to right. So I would see the Democrats trying to appeal to working class whites as, hey, we haven't forgotten you, uh -huh. because that was what clearly appealed last time. I think Trump will stay hard on his base and try to get the majority based on, on the way he's campaigned since he announced. What do you think of his um, tariff strategy now? Is that, that obvi obviously, to your point earlier, he's been running for re-election ever since yeah. he got elected. So cl clearly all these policies are really him aiming towards November, 2020. So does he take this tariffs and say, you know, and he's been focusing so much on steel and parts for cars. Yeah. This affects Ohio and Michigan. Do you think he goes into those states and say, look, this is how we helped you and whatever? Well, I mean, it's the the tariffs have already affected farmers in Iowa, mm -hmm. you know? And so Iowa could go into, I mean, Iowa clearly went for Trump in 16, but it's on the edge right now. It leans Trump, but the tariffs could be a big issue. You know, it's interesting uh, on the, let's say the China tariffs. Have mm -hmm. you heard any Democrat complain about this? Um, I guess they criticize him for starting a trade war. That's how, that's where I hear the, uh, the Democrats speaking about right. it. But, they've pretty much haven't said much. I mean, even George Soros came out the other day and said, this is right there. Mm. This is a you know national security threat at this point. Mm. So it's hard for the Democrats if they know that the, speaks, just let's just take China for one example. They know that the China tariffs have, are, are the right thing to do. Um, it's hard for them to run against that in these states, mm. right? Because that's where it's affected a lot. I think with Iowa, soybeans, things like that. So, on the other ones, the the other tariffs, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely going to be an issue, 100%.
you know, he said he was going to bring, you know, he has like, look, there are a lot of jobs right now. The economy is still booming, but uh, they're going to play it hard. Has there ever been a situation where the economy was, was booming and the incumbent lost? Mm-mm. I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you, the most famous one's Bill Clinton, who, you know, ran for reelection on the booming economy. And, you know, Carville basically said, you know, back in 92, it's the economy stupid because it was so poor. Yeah. Um, Reagan no, in 84. No, and, you know, again, you see this um, in, in all the polling we see um, within various campaigns we're working on right now. Uh, everybody's happy. I mean, you, you probably know this too. Like, go try to find uh, good quality working labor right now. It's hard. And what, what other and, issues do you see being a factor in 2020? Oh, it's, it's going to be personality. Mm. I mean, the, the, you've got it. Think about what the media is dying. The, the, the dying media, right, is, is what they need to make more money. I'm dead serious. This isn't like any kind of conspiracy. Like the media needs to make money. So they're going to create controversy. And it's going to be around the brands of either candidate, mostly Trump. As opposed to the issues. Of course. Yeah. Issues don't get ratings. Do you think people want to talk about tariffs on CNN? <laughs> No. Or Fox? No. No. There's never any talk of this. What does it mean? I want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Steve. So uh, as you get, are you, you're going to do, obviously you're going to be involved in the national campaign. Are you going to do local stuff as well? Yeah. I mean, we've got races all over the country mm-hmm. right now. Um, it was an interesting dynamic. The, the oxygen suck, suck so much life out of political campaigns where in the last few years, candidates, let's say the, you know, in 2014, 2016, after those campaigns ended, uh, the next day our phones were ringing off the hook with candidates saying, I want to run now, I want to run. And after 2018, and then the presidential campaign's kicking in, everybody's just sitting on the bench right now from you know jumping out. And there's a, you know, on the Senate, yeah, Senate side, there's just a lot of races out there that uh, people just want to be quiet right now and let these candidates suck the air out of them. But soon it's all mm-hmm. ramping up. So I always said after Labor Day, it would just go nuts and it mm-hmm. kind of has. All right, well, uh, Phil Sutz, thanks for uh, handicapping the 2020 election. Come back uh, in a couple of months for- Oh yeah, we'll keep doing this. Bachelor primaries. Yeah, let's keep covering the 2020 election. I love the game-like aspects of all this stuff. So, yeah. so it's fascinating. And- I mean, uh, if you like math and puzzles, the electoral college is the most fun you can play with. Yeah, what, what's uh, where where do people find your white papers on all this stuff and and your book and everything? Yeah, uh, philipstutz.com uh, is sort of where you can find me, and then um, the political marketing agency is Go Big Media, and the corporate marketing agency is Win Big Media. And you have white papers and stuff like that. There? Yeah, we have uh, uh, case studies on, on a lot of this. Stuff. And and title of the book. Fire them now. Fire them now. Seven lies digital marketers sell. Excellent. All right, Phil. Thanks so much. This was so informative, and uh, I can't wait to see what happens next. Thanks, man. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.